Well, good morning, church family. Such a, yeah, I like that. Come on, that's awesome. I'm excited to get into the Word today. Uh, We're obviously in the book of James. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there to James chapter 1. We're the third week into this series, and we're finally going to finish chapter 1. So that's encouraging. But uh, uh, I'm going to dive straight in and, and get going because, as you can see, We've got the baptistry in front of me, which means at the end of the sermon today, we get to watch some people make public professions of faith in Christ. So I'm really excited about that. Um, So go ahead, James chapter 1, turn there if you haven't yet. Um, Going through this letter from the Apostle James, which is just wisdom literature, subject after subject after subject, where he's teaching the body of Christ uh, many very different, very practical truths. Having said that, James chapter 1, verse 19 is where we will pick up today. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Lord, we need your help this morning. Holy Spirit, you are the one who opens our eyes to see the truth. You are the one who opens our heart and and draws us to Jesus. You are the one who changes our hearts. So Lord, we ask that you would guide what I say, guide what we hear, and let us not be hearers only, but let us be doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What we can see here from this opening section of what we're talking about today, James says that we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And remembering that last week, just a few verses earlier in chapter one, he talks about if any of us lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives freely without reproach. And so one of the things that I think we can see right here, plain and simple, is that the first act of wisdom is hearing. He says, let's be a people who are quick to hear. The first act of wisdom is hearing. In fact, to the degree that there are many Proverbs, I'll just pull one of them really quick, but Proverbs 17, 28, where it says, even a fool is thought to be wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Listen, if you want to be seen as wise, if you want to be seen as intellectual or smart, All you have to do is get good at closing your mouth. Have you ever been around that person who maybe you're talking about something or having a conversation where you know a good bit of the subject matter, but then that person you're talking to then says something because they feel the pressure to contribute to the conversation. They say something thinking they're showing you that they know stuff too, but in what they say, they're actually revealing to you that they don't really know anything about what you're talking about. Yeah, I've been there. In fact, this happens to me a lot whenever I'm around people who don't know I'm a pastor and then they find out I'm a pastor. Yeah, the point comes up. It happened back when I used to work third shift at Bemis. It happens when I'm out on the golf course and I get paired with strangers and we're playing golf and we'll be a a, a few holes in and then the conversation comes up. So what do you do? And I'm like, here we go. (laughs) Well, I'm a pastor. Oh, that's the, I was really upset earlier when I was saying those things. 
I don't normally talk like that. Hey, man, it's between you and the Lord. And it's funny, a, a hole or two later, they'll start saying all the, you know, citing different things that they've heard or know about the Bible or about Jesus or about God. And it's this, this innate pressure to try and tell me or show me for whatever reason that they are a religious or spiritual or holy person. And usually it's a guilty conscience that I'm not trying to cast on people, but it's internally people are with someone who they perceive to be a holy man, a man of the cloth, and then they feel this pressure to try and show themselves as something that they're not. And we all can have a tendency to do that. And Proverbs and James are both saying right here, hey, if, if you're actually, if you're wise, you're going to be quick to listen and you're going to be slow to speak. He goes on here, pri James is challenging us to prioritize listening and hearing above speaking. That before we would speak, we would have the wisdom to listen, to process, to muse, to ponder, to ask, to seek to understand. And when we have done so, perhaps after doing all of that, perhaps at that moment, maybe we're ready to speak or to act. Let's look again at verse 19. He says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, uncontrolled anger leads to uncontrolled speech. How often do we find ourselves regretting words spoken in the heat of the moment? Is that just me, or have you been there before? In the, in the moment of anger, in the moment of frustration, and whatever the conversation is about where your emotions are elevated and you went a little too far with your words and said something you shouldn't have said and maybe just as those words are rolling off the tongue, you're going, no, no, come back. <laughs> it's like the processing happens after the words get out and you recognize those words I just said were hurtful or ill-advised or could wound a person that I actually love and or care about. I have regretted things I've said before in anger. The wise person James reminds us that if we will learn to control the emotion of anger, we will eliminate one of the most common sources of hasty and unwise speech. If we can learn to manage our emotions, and, and I'll just give a little caveat here that's um, free, if you will. Sometimes people will use their personality traits or their background or their history as justification. Oh, I'm Irish, you know, <laughs> which I legitimately am partially Irish. And they'll use, oh, you know, that's just in my genes, you know. We're just feisty. We're fiery. And or, you know, I took this personality test and it tells me that I'm number whatever or I'm this type or that's my personality type. And we'll use things about ourselves that we can find out about ourselves as justification for our behaviors. The behaviors and the traits that are called to die at the cross. And I've heard people use these tests as a means to justify sin that they need to lay at the feet of Jesus and crucify 
Oh, you know, I'm just a number whatever. That's just me. Hey, I'm a type A, so I'm a bulldozer, you know, so just get used to it. No, maybe that needs to be sanctified by the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so personality tests, cool. If they're helpful, great. Do not use it as an excuse to justify how you want to behave in the areas in which you don't want to grow. All right, that was fun. (laughs) Emotions are a product of the entire person. And by God's grace and the work of the Spirit, the person can be transformed so as to bring emotions in line with God's word and God's will. If you struggle with anger, that doesn't have to be you. If you've always struggled with anger, you don't have to just relegate yourself to just go, I guess I was born this way. I guess this is who I am. I guess this is inherent in me. This is in my DNA and my genes. My family's always had this. Well, you're born again into the body of Christ, into the family of God. You're filled with the Holy Spirit of God and he loves to take dead sinners and make them new. He then goes on to point out that unchecked anger does not produce what is translated in the ESV translation as the righteousness of God, or in simpler terms, anger doesn't produce the kind of righteous life God wants for us. He's saying that this anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. The phrase that James is using here saying the righteousness of God, he's saying it in a different way than the way that Paul often says the righteousness of God. That when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, he's talking about our position in Christ, that we are right with God by grace through faith. Wherein God looks at us, we just talked about this with communion, but because Jesus Christ paid our sin debt, we are right with God. We have the righteousness of God imputed on us. What James is saying here, rather, is that the anger of God doesn't produce the righteousness of God, meaning a lifestyle conducive or bearing the fruit of righteousness in God, meaning you've been given righteousness from Christ. There is a way in which We live righteously. And he's saying anger doesn't produce that. And so if you're a person who's prone to anger, struggling with anger, has always been, I want to encourage you to lay that before the Lord, to petition him, to pray and ask him to set you free from anger and to replace your anger with joy, to replace it with peace and comfort through his Holy Spirit to continue to consume the word of God, that the word of God would work in your heart and work out that junk so that the righteousness of God would overflow out of you into the way that you live. Let's look again at verse 21. He says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. A couple of thoughts really quickly there. Number one is that we are to put it away, this filth and wickedness. He says, put it away. It is our choice, our decision to put ungodliness away from us in our lives. And then he goes on and says, receive with meekness or humility or smallness, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Salvation begins by hearing the word of God. Faith in Christ begins by hearing about what Christ did for us. That's why Paul said in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
You can't have faith in Christ if you never hear his message. There is a popular statement, mantra, ideology out there that I think is well-intended but misguided that says, preach the gospel at all times, and if you must, use words, you've heard it, or some of you have heard it, preach the gospel at all times, and if you must, use words. And I just want to push back and say, you can't preach the gospel without using words. Now, you can model the fruit of the gospel in your life, and I think that's what that statement's trying to get at. You can live in a way that shows that you've been saved by the grace of God, that you've been made righteous, and you therefore are changed by the Holy Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. But the idea that you can preach the gospel without words, I think is rather silly. In fact, if you were in the first century, if you were there in the book of Acts, and you said to Peter or to Paul or to John or to any of the apostles or any of the early first century church, if you said that statement to them, if you said, hey, Peter, preach the gospel at all times, and if you must, use words, Peter would go, what are you talking about? Were you there in Jerusalem when I stood up in front of 5,000 people and preached the gospel? I didn't get up in front of them and just said, let me show you guys kindness and love. I'm going to show you guys how to serve one another. Of course, we need kindness. We need love. We need to show that fruit in our lives. But people cannot believe the gospel if they never hear the gospel. People cannot recognize that they need a Savior unless they hear the bad news that we are all of us sinful and condemned before God if we don't confess our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't hear that, you can't receive it. You can't believe it. You can't walk it out. We must preach the gospel with words. Now, our lives, hopefully, by the grace of God, Cultivate and prepare that ground and plow that ground. The way we live, the life that we live, the love, the kindness, all the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. People ought to look at us and see those things. And the way that we live bearing all that fruit is like the plow preparing, but the seed is the Word of God. The message of the gospel is what must be planted and Paul, another time to the Corinthians, would say, one plants, one waters, but God gives the increase, which is why he was saying, don't say I'm a follower of Paul or a follower of Apollos. We're just planting seeds over here. We're watering seeds and just praying and trusting God that one day he's going to grant increase into salvation in people's lives. The word of God is the seed planted into our hearts that hopefully takes root and grows and eventually bears the fruit of righteousness, righteous living in our lives, holiness, which we'll talk about in just a minute. This is the implanted word that James just talked about. He said, with meekness receive the implanted word from verse 21. James makes the point that although now he's going to shift as he's talking about, be quick to hear, be quick to listen, slow to speak, which is very true and very powerful. He also recognizes that there can also very easily be a tendency among us to be quick to hear and go, yeah, teach me, preach to me. Let's discuss, let's study, let's research, let's debate, all this. And we can do that at the expense of doing. It makes the point that we want to be quick to hear 
slow to speak, but that doesn't mean we want to elevate hearing at the expense of doing. Let's continue on in James chapter 1. Let's look at verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Let's just pause and let that sink in for a moment. He says, let's be doers of the word, meaning people who do or respond or live according to what we hear. Because if we don't, if we're hearers only, we're deceiving ourselves into thinking that we know God because we ingest, because we consume, because we read, because we feed. I'm going to start rapping here in a second. That wasn't planned. We convince ourselves because we go through these ingesting habits. We can convince ourselves that we know God and that we are a a spiritual people or a religious people. And James in a moment is going to say, here's what true religion looks like. He's saying, if you are those who love hearing, love coming to church, love going to Bible study, love small group, love all those things, and there is no bearing on the way you live, you are deceiving yourself. Verse 22 again, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, He will be blessed in his doing. See, the greater danger for Christians or for church people is that we can become so eager to hear, we can go into the extreme of what he's saying, be quick to hear. We go, all right, I want to be that. I want to be the person who's quick to hear the word of God. Give it to me. Lay it on me. Oh, that feels good. Oh, that cut. Oh, you got on my toes this morning, pastor. Oh, it felt good. Oh, that Bible study. Man, the revelation dropped. Man, it was dropping. Woo! And do nothing. The greater danger for Christians is that we can become so eager to hear, to read, to study, to discuss, to debate, and never do. Why? Because hearing is a really easy way to feel spiritual. Hearing is a really easy way to feel like we're spiritual. It's really easy to come to church, and I went to church, and I listened to the sermon. I paid attention, even took notes, Pastor. Come on. And feel like we're growing and feel like we're spiritual because we did ingest. And that's like the person who just eats, 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 and lives on the couch. And we all know what will happen to that individual's body. We want to be a people who do. See, the theme of this paragraph is obvious. Those who have experienced the new birth by means of God's word must accept that word by doing it. In other words, if you believe it, you will do it. And if you don't do it, it's actually reverse evidence that you don't believe it. And that you like the ideas, 
And there's so many people who love the ideas of being right with God, but don't truly believe the gospel, don't truly believe what the scripture teaches us to where it comes out in the way that we live. See, all of us are sitting confidently in our chairs, not worried if we are going to float up to the ceiling. And if you went outside and you're like, well, okay, what? Why, why are we not worried that we're going to float up to the ceiling? Because we believe in gravity. You believe in gravity, and so you sit confidently, you walk confidently, you go outside and you're not worried about the ceiling not being there anymore and that you're going to float out into outer space. Why? Because you believe in gravity, you have faith in this thing, this force that you cannot see, and you act accordingly. If you have faith in Christ, it will show up in the way that you live. If you believe it, you will do it. To accept God's word is to live by it. To accept, James said, receive the implanted word in meekness. And he goes on to say, if you do that, if you receive this implanted word, which is able to save your souls, it will look like you being a person who does it. He's trying to say, accepting the implanted word doesn't stop with hearing. Accepting the implanted word of God with meekness then translates into doing, living, acting. James is saying pretty clearly here, if you hear the word and don't do it, don't obey it, don't change the way you live, accordingly, you are self-deceived. You might be able to, on any given day of the week, some of you might be able to recite meticulous details about the Packers championship history. You could say they won this year and this year and this year, four years, right? Not five years like the Cowboys. Okay, I thought so. Um, <laughs> I'm just messing. The cowboys are a laughing stock, so just laugh with me. You could sit there and recite those four Super Bowls, the years they happened, who the quarterback was, who the coach was. You could sit there and recite the plays and go, they were in a nickel coverage and a dime coverage and the safety dropped. And then he threw the pass. He ran a, a post route and then he handed it off. And you could recall all these details. You could study the game. You could sit there and watch pre-snap formations and go, oh, they're in the nickel or the dime. And you could go, oh, this motion and this cue that he always says means this. And he's going to do the hard cap and he's going to try and draw them off sides. And then, oh my goodness, the clock and you could be a student of the game and never be a player. And James is saying, you're deceiving yourself, pretending you're a player when you just know all the stuff about the game. He's saying you're self-deceived. Any one of us in the room, I don't think there's any Packers in the room today, any pro players, if you're here, cool. Um, there's none of us in the room today Yet if we were talking after church, it's like, hey, what do you do? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a football player. Now, maybe you mean flag football or recreational football, but if you're like, no, no, I, I'm a Packer. You know, we, we lost this year. I love that. We fans were like, yeah, we won or we lost. We didn't do anything. <laughs> we watched, we cheered, we cried. We did not play. If your faith is true, you will get off the bench. You will get out off the couch. You will get out of the stands and get your cleats on and get out in the field and start running plays. And our plays are not shotgun. They're not eye formation. 
They're not slants or, or all the different screen pass, whatever. Our place, as James will show us in a moment, is caring for widows and orphans, something I think we're really weak at right now. Our plays are living holy, abstaining from impurities, as he just said, put off all wickedness. Our plays are gathering together in worship. Our plays are serving and living sacrificially. Our playbook looks different than the world's playbook. And if we really believe it, it will prompt us to get out of the stands, to get off the bench, and to play See, obedience to God's word is the mark of genuine faith in Christ. Obedience to God's word is the mark of genuine faith in Christ. Oh, pastor, listen, we're in the new covenant. We, we have grace. We're under grace. We're not under the law. So you can't talk about obedience anymore. Okay, well, the great commission, Jesus himself said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded. Other translations would say, teaching them to obey all I have commanded. The thought that you can submit yourself to the Lord of all creation and never have to obey is deceitful. There are areas in which we are called to obey, but we don't obey out of a burden of trying to earn approval. We obey because we delight in our Savior. It's the difference of the person who's doing good deeds for their spouse, trying to earn brownie points, and the person who's doing good deeds for their spouse just because they love them and want to, want to serve them. Same act, different motive. Paul, or I'm sorry, James uses the illustration of a mirror. He says, the person who is a hearer only and not a doer deceiving themselves is like a person who looks in a mirror intently at their own face, walks away, and immediately forgets what they look like. Now, if you studied ancient literature and ancient Near Eastern poetry, the eras that this was written in, you would find that the mirror was a symbol of self-analyzation, self-evaluation. And even still today, this isn't just an ancient Eastern concept, the, the metaphor of looking in the mirror, right? I'm looking at the man in the mirror. <laughs> I will spare you the dance moves. I'm starting with the man in the mirror, right? That's the, the metaphor, the concept that the mirror is meant to cause self-evaluation. When we look at the word of God, it evaluates us. Our life is contrasted on it. And we are called higher every time. Called closer every time. And he's saying the person who hears the word, looks into the mirror and walks away and doesn't do anything about what they just saw. It's like the person, it's like waking up in the morning with your hair looking like, I don't know, uh, Albert Einstein and Tina Turner had a baby. And you look in the mirror and you go, oh, there's nothing to see here. This is good. I'm gonna go about my day. No, you look in the mirror and go, oh, snap. Or you just ate some meal and you see something in your teeth and you're like, oh, that's cute. We'll go with it. No, you would see that and go, oh, no. Or you look in the mirror and see your flies done. And you're like, no problems here. We'll have a great day, a nice breeze. <laughs> no, you would look in the mirror, see that problem, and adjust it, right? 
He's saying the person who doesn't do anything with what they see in the word of God, the person whose life is not changed, the way they live, the way they talk, the decisions they make that are not changed by the word of God is like standing in front of the mirror with crazy hair and something on your teeth and your fly open and going, we're good for today. And or you're forgetting what you look like or actually it'd be more like looking and going, oh, this is problematic. I got to do something about this now. What was the problem? Uh, it's probably all fine. I'll just go about my day. That's how foolish he's saying it is, or even more so saying, hey, everyone, come see how good I look. Be foolishness. So what is the cause? What is it that causes us to look in the mirror, to walk away, and do nothing about it? What is it that causes us to look into the mirror of the word of God and go, that was a nice lesson. Now back to what I was doing, back to my regularly scheduled programming. What is it that causes that? I think Jesus gives a really great lesson in the parable of the sower. Turn quickly to Mark chapter four, if you will. Keep your place in James chapter one and turn to Mark chapter four. The gospel of Mark. Jesus teaches a parable called the parable of the sower. And he teaches it at once and has some conversation with his disciples about why he teaches in parables. And then he goes back to the parable to explain it to them. And I'm going to pick up right there for time's sake. Mark 4 and verse 14. Jesus says, the sower sows the word, meaning someone is sowing seed. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. In the parable, Jesus said, there's different kinds of soil. There's the seed that is sown by the sower, and some of it falls on a path, on the hard path. Some of it falls on stony ground. Some of it falls among the thorns, and then some of it falls on good soil, and that good soil grows and reaps a harvest. And so right here, he's explaining those different types of soil. Newsflash, you are a type of soil. And you need to be asking yourself, which one of these am I? So he says, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. This is the person who hears the word of God, who hears the scripture taught, who has conversations where people try to tell them about God, try to tell them about the word of God, try to tell them about the gospel, and immediately Satan comes in with deceit and doubt and says, no, that's not true, that's not real, you don't need to believe that, that's lies, that's ancient, that's, that's dated, that's not true. Satan comes to immediately take that seed away with doubt and unbelief. And you could be that soil, the path that's treaded down hard to where the seeds seeds can't even penetrate. It's just taken away immediately. Next in verse 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. All right, this is good. And they have no root in themselves. But endure for a little while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. We're going to see a lot more of this soil revealed as the days move on. This is the soil among the stony ground where Jesus says, this is the person who hears the word and when they hear it, they're like, yeah, awesome. And they receive it with joy. 
But then the minute that hardship or persecution comes on account of that word, meaning believing in Jesus Christ causes hardship in your life, then they go, oh, uh, actually, never mind. And this is going to happen a lot more in the coming days in America. It's happening right now. You have to decide if you're okay being called hateful. Even though we are the one, the people who know the God who himself is love, who creates love in us. Are you willing to take all the labels and all the names that are thrown on you? Are you willing to be treated differently among your friends and your family and your coworkers to be faithful to Christ? If not, if those hardships and relational tensions and persecution affect you to where you go, actually, no, you know what, never mind, I don't believe. And Jesus is saying, you're the stony ground where that seed fell and you received it with joy. But because you had no root, the sun came up and dried it out. He goes on, verse 18, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. A good example of this is where Paul is writing, and he, taught, he says, Demas left me in love with this present world. This is a guy who was a disciple of Paul, where Paul preached the gospel to him, and apparently he received it, and he was growing, and he was learning. But then he says, Demas left me or abandoned me in love with this present world, saying the love for the things of this world, right here, the deceitfulness of riches and toys and stuff, all the things that we want to pursue, all the things that Ecclesiastes tells us is meaningless, all these pacifiers that we put in our mouth that we think are going to satisfy us, all the things that we think are truly going to make us happy, that we receive the word and we go, yeah, I think I believe this, but... It's like the rich young ruler who Jesus says, hey, you've done well. You've been a good man, a good person, but give away all you have, sell it and give it to the poor. Jesus to that man adjusts or addresses the idol of his heart, which for him was all of his possessions. And Jesus says to him, yeah, get rid of that. Come follow me. And it says he went away sad because he had many possessions. Now, for the rich young ruler, it was his riches, his money, his possessions. I wonder for each one of us, what is the one thing that's highest in our heart that Jesus would say, set that aside and come follow me? What is it for you? What is the one thing that for you, if Jesus said, I want that, that that thing would end up being thorns that choke out the seed that has been planted to where you go, oh, I just actually want a Christianity that leaves that part of my life alone. I want a Jesus, I want a God that, that lets me have that and doesn't prune that area of my life. I want the faith that, uh, you know, lets me believe in God but leaves my stuff alone. And he says, if that's you, you would be the thorny soil where the word hit and you received it. But the cares of this world and riches and love for the things of this world sprung up and choked out that seed of the word of God. Verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil, how many of you want to be good soil? 
Amen. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Jesus says those who hear and accept the word, those who are changed by the word, that is the good soil today. I hope and pray by the Holy Spirit that the words of Jesus here are calling you to look at yourself and hear and have a longing and a yearning, a desire to be good soil. To hear the warnings of Jesus and go, I don't want to be the person who, who lets the seed of the word of God be swept away quickly with doubt and unbelief and deceit from Satan. I don't want to be the person who hears the word of God quickly, but yet hardship comes and makes me go, ah, this is too hard, never mind. I don't want to be the person who receives the word and starts growing, but then the pleasures and desires of this world and status and acclaim and achievement make me go, ah, it's not worth it, uh, uh, never mind. But we want to be the people who receive, as James said, the implanted word, that we accept it and then we respond and act on it and let it change the way that we live, change the things that we do, change the things that we say, change the way that we think, change every single area of our life. Following Jesus will leave no area of your life untouched. Following Jesus will leave no area of your life untouched. Let's be those who receive the word with gladness and go, Lord, like we just sang, holy, 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 holy is our God, worthy is Christ the Lamb. All my heart, all my soul, all I have is yours alone. Holy is our God. You recognize that if you're going to be good soil, then that means you don't belong to yourself. You don't own yourself. You don't choose anymore what your life is about, but you die daily to follow, to serve, to please, to obey the Lord. Which soil will we be? Will we be those who hear and do and bear fruit I think part of the reason that the person who looks in the mirror and walks away not doing but only hearing, I think part of the reason they're self-deceived and part of the reason they forget what they look like is because they didn't act on it and therefore there's no fruit to see. There's no evidence in their life of the seed of the word of God having taken root in their heart. James issues this warning to us that if we think True religion, true faith is just going to church or going to Bible studies or small groups or even reading the Bible, but having no root taken our heart that leads to a changed heart that turns into changed behaviors, that turns into selfless service, into acts of love and charity, that if, if we don't see that, then we are self-deceived. So he concludes with this, saying, if you think you're religious, if you think that you have faith as a hearer and not a doer, verse 26 and 27, he says this, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Wow. Wow, like, 
He's saying if, if our religion doesn't roll into what we say. That's why I just said, following Jesus leaves no area of your life untouched. I've always talked like this. I've always had that kind of language. You know, I'm trying, listen, Jesus or James is saying, if you consider yourself religious, it's going to affect the words you say, the things that come out of your mouth. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I want to really quickly here just say, a lot of times I see, I think, a false dichotomy drawn where people are like, well, I don't want to be, I'm not religious, I have a relationship. And I think that's an unnecessary dichotomy to draw. James himself is saying, hey, it's true religion. True faith in Christ comes out in the way that you live, comes out in the way that you treat those who have nothing to offer you, like widows and orphans, those who are in distress. True religion looks like serving them, helping them, getting out of our own comfort, getting out of our own convenience, our own prioritization of what we want to do with our stuff and helping those who cannot help themselves like widows and orphans. And then he goes on, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That true religion, true faith in Christ looks like holiness. It looks like not trying to find how close to the line can I get without crossing the line. It looks like Oh, there's a line there. I want to take two steps away from it. I want to get closer to the Lord. I don't want to try and make my Christianity look as close to the world as I can. I want to accept that I'm a peculiar people. I'm called to look different. I'm called to be holy. I'm not called to try and look as much like the world as I can. I'm supposed to look like a weirdo. Embrace it. Accept it. And people call you a weirdo, go, I know, right? I believe in a guy I can't see. And I believe in what he did 2,000 years ago. And I'm living my whole life based on it. I'm a weirdo, right? I'm peculiar. I get it. But I believe it and I love him and I want to serve him. Our faith comes out in the way that we live. That's the main idea of what James is saying here. If you have faith, it comes out in the way that you live in our service to the needy, to the poor, to the weak, to the feeble. It comes out in the way that we live by abstaining from wickedness, by saying, no, I don't want that. It comes out in caring for others. You cannot experience the incomprehensible generosity of the grace of God and go on as if it's no big deal. You cannot look in that mirror and walk away unchanged unless you're bad soil. You can't believe that God literally paid the price for your sins and not, not sink down into your core and come out in your life decisions unless you're the hard soil or the stony soil or the thorny soil. So the question that James, I think, would ask us today that hopefully the word of God asks us every day that we get into it, every day we hear it, is what are you going to do? I'm always so encouraged when people come up to me and say, Pastor Stephen, great message, that, that was so encouraging or challenging or whatever. And I just, wanna, I just wanna say every time like, oh, I'm thankful. What are you gonna do 
differently in light of what you just heard. So I might start saying that. Uh, praise God. What impact did that word have on your life? Because if it doesn't change us in who we are and what we do and the way that we live, we're deceiving ourselves. Your homework assignment at the end of every sermon should be to go, what do I do in light of what I just heard or read? 